0: Often, when I'm uh, enjoying one of those, you know, single-serving conversations that some, one sometimes exchanges with a, a grocery store clerk or a barista or a waiter, I get asked the question, uh, what are you up to today? You know, the, the little tiny window of time you have to talk, what are you up to? And immediately, I'm presented with at least two social dilemmas. First... Um, how How interested could this individual possibly be with the unfolding contents of my day? Are they expecting a mostly untrue little platitude? You know, like, oh, not much. That's not true, but that resolves the conversation very quickly. Or is this the type of clerk that's looking for a little bit more sincerity? And if so, how much? So I have to make the decision in that moment, and I always make it, okay, be honest, but keep things simple. After all, there's a line forming behind me. So I'll say something like, well, I'm working. For a while, and then I'm going to go home and spend time with my family. There's like a sort of social thing, but it's also somewhat personal. You know, I think that gets the job done as, as well as it can. And I think there it is, honest, succinct, succinct. It's a small social victory, and that's when the second dilemma presents itself, more complicated than the first one. So the clerk usually smiles, and they say, "What do you do for work?" Um, and if I answer, uh, I teach then they'll be happy with that answer. If I say I work, I work for a nonprofit, which is technically true, they'd be happy with that as well. Uh, even if I said something rambling and sort of uh, pseudo-spiritual sounding like, oh, I work to help others discover a sense of community and spirituality, they would love that. They would eat that up. Um, maybe they'd congratulate me or they'd want to hear more about this job that I have. But in that moment, I almost always answer with the more terse, to-the-point explanation and say, I'm a pastor at a church, and then I stand there like this, like, what's, what's going to happen now? <laughs> um, and many times, many, many times uh, that I've experienced this dialogue, nine out of ten of those times, the aforementioned declaration kind of loses this immediate palpable tension in the air. There's like a slight, barely discernible recoil that happens where there's like, oh, you know, and all this momentum that was happening in the conversation suddenly goes, more, and then I'm wondering what's going through the clerk's or the barista or the waiter's imagination. You know, I'm uh, thinking, oh, they're probably thinking, he's one of them. He's a, he's a bigot. He's a, a politicized, war-loving, card-carrying, uneducated church person. He probably spells the Christ and Christmas with capital letters. He, he thinks that Adam and Eve rode around in a garden on dinosaurs, and maybe they do think some of these things. I have no way of knowing. Um, maybe they don't think any of those things, and that's paranoia on my part. But often in that moment, a, a semi-perceptible wall does go up. The conversation stalls out. Things get strange. But things haven't always been that way. In fact, this is a terribly recent development in the United States in particular. Some 50 years ago, um, even as recently as 25 years ago, this exchange may have unfolded quite differently, at least statistically. So over a period of the last two to three hundred years, particularly in the last two to three decades, Western culture has experienced an incredible shift and our shared cultural topography, the, the ground beneath our feet is sort of moving. And there's, there's some debate over the nuances that have contributed to these changes, but in the time that we have this evening, I just wanna talk about uh, what many sociologists and uh, some thorough studies seems to indicate could have been the cause. So as a result of the changes that we're about to discuss in a moment, we've evolved from what may have been described at one point as a sort of Christianized culture, to what could just as easily now be described as a post-Christian culture. Now, let me be clear, when I say Christian culture, I do not mean Christian nation. Uh, In 1797, John Adams, he wrote this famous statement, uh, the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. I agree with Mr. Adams' statement in perpetuity. Uh, Indeed, I believe personally there can be no such thing as a Christian nation. God's kingdom functions in a way that is unable to be enforced via the coercive power of government. God's kingdom has no national boundaries of any kind. But when I say Christianized culture, I mean that there was a time when many people openly purported belief in the God of the Bible, in Jesus, in the authority of the scriptures, in the system of ethics therein, and so on and so on. Historians favor the term Christendom, which is a little bit clearer. And this is noteworthy because prior to something called the Edict of Milan, which happened in 331 AD, the way of Jesus was a lifestyle that was reserved only for a small, violently persecuted minority of weirdos. But in 331 AD, this emperor called Constantine made violence against followers of Jesus illegal, and eventually it gave way to Christianity becoming a political majority in the Roman Empire. And many historians think that Constantine's effort was nothing more than a political move. You know, he's mindful of this growing sect of weirdos that are permeating the Roman Empire. Uh, They worship this executed rabbi and think that he's God. And so Constantine makes this strategic political gesture by making violence against them illegal and many thinkers and myself included suspect that the unification of the church and the empire may have been one of the worst things that ever happened to the church now at a clear traceable turning point in history, Constantine effectively transformed the way transformed the way of Jesus into something of a civil religion. A civil religion that became the de facto worldview for the Roman Empire itself. Now this idea of Christianity, which is a term never used by Jesus or the New Testament authors, um, Christianity as a religious form and Christendom as the sort of socio-political offspring that that religious notion uh, gave birth to, it, it permeated much of the civilized world. This sort of symbiotic or parasitic, depending on how you put it, relationship between the church and the state continued for more than a thousand years. Even in free world countries like the United States and Canada, a certain version of Christianity or Christendom uh, persevered as a default sort of national or social religion. And this wasn't called into question whatsoever until around the 17th and 18th centuries during uh, the Age of Enlightenment, when many key assumptions of Christendom were finally called into question. But Christendom, as a moral majority sort of thing, didn't experience rapid breakdown until the last few decades. Now listen. There there can be no doubt whatsoever that the way of Jesus continues to spread around the world uh, like wildfire, to explode even around the world, and particularly in the global south and in developing nations. But here, in the western world, in Europe and in America, the way of Jesus is in rapid decline. And uh, we are living in something that sociologists call a post Christian culture. And we're experiencing those shifts in three distinct sort of transitions. The first is that we've moved from something of a majority to a minority. So, for the first time in American history, self proclaimed Protestant Christians, whatever that means, are no longer a majority group uh, in the U.S. Now, uh, we, all, we all know that there may indeed be a sizable chasm between self-proclaimed Protestant Christian and the actual disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. But even so, those who claim even some version of Christendom are now a minority in America. In fact, the fastest growing category for belief in America is something called the nuns. Um, those who claim no religious worldview of any kind, they, they would say something like, I'm spiritual but not religious. Uh, or, or maybe they're agnostic. Or they're atheists, whatever it might be, the nuns. Sounds like a bad band. Um, and this is especially true of urbanized areas of the Pacific Northwest. We don't have excellent stats on the area, surprisingly, but it's not difficult to deduce that cities like Vancouver, cities like Portland, cities like Seattle, um, a very small percentage of the population of the city is in church on any given Sunday morning or evening. Now, that means that if you look around your office where you work, or you look around the park where your kids play, or if you, um, you know, go to the grocery store and you kind of do a head count, chances are that a very small percentage, I would suspect, and you know, that, that maybe none of <laughs> or three of the people that are around you at any given time are practicing the way of Jesus. That means to be a follower of Jesus in a place like uh, Vancouver or the Pacific Northwest is to be an endangered species. There was also a time when followers of Jesus in, enjoyed a, a place of uh, in the center of cultural influence for better or for worse. Many government leaders at one time in the West claimed to follow Jesus. All our institutions of higher learning at one point uh, were founded as Christian, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Uh, most writers and thinkers and philosophers in the West were openly Christian. Pastors were uh, often considered men and women of high standing or, you know, a certain uh, a pedigree of moral character rather than suspected of racism and bigotry and right-wing politics. Today, followers of Jesus have been sort of forcibly ushered from their seats of influence to the fringes of culture, almost like to the kitty table. It's like, go sit down. You, you weirdos. You guys are on the wrong side of history. You're, you're dangerous to the flourishing of society. So slowly, culture relinquished its admiration for Christendom and began to entertain little more than a passing tolerance for this really bizarre worldview, so long as we all just shut up about it, you know? Um, believe what you want, but just keep it to yourself. Uh, Professor Lee Beach writes this, in the... In the there it is, in the post-Christian revolution, it is fair to say that the church is one of those former power brokers who once enjoyed a place of influence in the, at the cultural table, but has been chased away from its place of privilege and is now seeking to find where it belongs amid the ever-changing dynamics of contemporary culture. Followers of Jesus are no longer thought to maintain any sense of moral or spiritual authority, nor even a sense of credibility. In the public sp- square. And that's fascinating because there was a time when folks called Christians were largely respected by culture at large. Even those who use the title Christian as little more than a moniker, um, something that still goes on in places like uh, the southeastern United States, um, were still sort of respected by culture at large. They, they, they enjoyed that moniker under an umbrella of mostly positive connotations. So they were respectable or moral or generally, generally trustworthy. Then someone started thinking about all this stuff that we do, you know. They started thinking about like, they eat crackers and they drink juice and they call it blood and flesh and um, and they refrain from sex outside of this weird, narrow context of this man and a woman in a lifelong marriage covenant. These people are really weird. And has anyone noticed the stuff that they believe? Um, and then we were thinking, oh, fair enough. Uh, and then, <laughs> uh, you know, it makes me think for, for nearly three years now, every single Monday morning I have breakfast with the same little group of friends at the same cafe. Um, and we have the same waitress, Melissa, every single week. She's wonderful. She knows us by name. She knows what we order every week. We have inside jokes. It's, it's a great sitcom situation we have going on. And after a while of this uh, sitcom rapport that we developed, she inevitably asked, hey, what do you guys do when you leave, you know, pouring our coffee? What do you guys do when you leave here on a Monday morning? And we just immediately say, oh, we work at a church together. And for a brief moment, Melissa eyed us as though we just told her that like, we belong to an ongoing Sasquatch investigation or something like this. Like, is this your real answer? Or, oh, that's, oh, that's really it. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. And, um, and honestly, that was a really favorable reaction compared to so many that I've had personally, not just that I've read about, but that I've had personally in recent years. Well beyond kind of cute and quirky followers of Jesus are often considered problematic, Uh, Many modern people are so, and I don't mean this to sound so pejorative, but many modern people are so wildly illiterate in matters of faith and spirituality that as a disciple of Jesus, I've been personally compared to, this one was recently, an ISIS fighter, um, to abortion clinic bombers, to militarized political campaigners, simply for claiming the way of Jesus or for talking about him. And I don't mean that like, oh, woe is me, I'm being persecuted. It's just the fact of the world that we live in. I remember the first time I set foot on stage in, uh, in Europe, to perform as a musician. And the moment that I began to talk about Jesus in this midst of this set that we were doing, which was kind of our thing, uh, a heckler started yelling for you know us to kindly shut up in so many words. I won't say exactly what he said. That's not that unusual, but he was really like vehement about it. So afterward, um, a couple of us went and found the heckler, you know, and we asked him to tell us more about why he was so upset that we mentioned Jesus. I was just curious. We were in Germany for the first time, and he was friendly enough, but, He said that his immediate reaction when we started going on about Jesus was, here comes this American Christian to tell us what to think, and these are the same racist, homophobic people that are bombing the world and holding society back from progress. So just imagine the way that followers of Jesus are objectively, and this is not just, you know, um, sort of, uh, what I suspect, it seems to me, Father Jesus are now objectively positioned on the moral low ground when it comes to something like our sexuality ethic. Um, as difficult it is to believe, there was a time in recent history when the sexual ethics of Jesus were largely perceived as a moral high ground, meaning that even if folks thought it was strange or they thought it was old-fashioned or they didn't believe it themselves, there, there remained a sort of sense of admiration for such a stringent way of living. You know, it's like wow, they really are dedicated to that thing. I'm, I don't like it myself, but that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty admirable. This particular area drifted rapidly from moral high ground, like wow, that's not for me, but man, there's something to be said about that. To sort of a dismissed cult mentality, like those guys are nuts. Let them do their own thing. And even then, a cult mentality is like, that's fine, so long as they don't try to tell us about it. And today, it's not just the cult mentality thing, but it's the moral low ground, and it's no longer silently to- tolerated. The sexual ethic of Jesus is held to be immoral. So to stand with Jesus in the scriptures, thousands of years of church history and orthodoxy is immoral in the culture at large. You are intolerant in a culture where the modern notion of tolerance, the the mo- not real tolerance, but the modern notion of tolerance is the virtue of ultimate standing. And no matter how winsome or kind and humble or how carefully worded or intelligent or educated one is, to stand with Jesus and the writers of the scriptures and abstain from pornography or, or from cohabitation or from gay sex or from fooling around outside of the context of marriage, to do all these things, even as a personal ethic, not imposed on an involuntary public, but as a personal ethic is considered to be bigoted or intolerant or stupid or immoral. The collective culture has migrated from a positive understanding. This is what I'm getting at. has migrated from a positive understanding of this thing called Christianity, for better or for worse, to an objectively negative view of followers of Jesus. So the question starts to rise, how did we get to this place? Uh, Once again, Lee Beach identifies three conduits of change that have contributed to this great migration. The first is something called secularization. So this, this famous sociologist called Charles Taylor wrote this influential book called uh, A Secular Age. And in it, Taylor argues that 500 years ago in the West, it was unthinkable to deny belief in God. Not just God, but in the God of Christianity and the Bible. Today, even the most devoted disciples of Jesus, pastors, leaders in the church, Mother Teresa, are absolutely racked with doubt. And doubt in and of itself is is not inherently bad. It can actually be quite healthy and even helpful for a disciple of Jesus to experience periods of doubt. But what I'm getting at is that we have moved from what Charles Taylor called enchantment to disenchantment. So during enchantment, the world is invariably charged with spirituality. Everything around you is spiritual. God, Satan, angels, demons, uh, God's divine involvement in human history, providence, uh, cooperation with the human project. All these things are a given. Of course, we believe in those things. But during disenchantment, these things become myths. Um, from, you know, a, a pre-modern era, a pre-scientific time. Now we know better. We have ways of explaining these things away. What we know to be real is what can be eyed through the lens of a microscope or, or cataloged and put on the sterile white shelves of a lab. A change like this has imparted massive ramifications on society at a, at a moral and spiritual level. Taylor writes that secularization has slowly led North American citizens away from ecclesiastical authority and toward individual authority and the individual's ability to pursue personal fulfillment without regard to any particular set of religious beliefs or codes. For the most part, this process has been slow and gradual, at times almost imperceptible. Canadian researcher Michael Adams talks about a winding journey from the death of God and the traditional notions of family and community to a highly individualistic population focused on personal control and autonomy to a new embryonic but fast growing sense of human interconnectedness with technology and with nature. This is the disorienting shift in which you and I find ourselves, but there's more. Get this, following World War II, America experienced this economic boom which gave way to the rise of suburban living. Um, which gave way to a rapidly expanding middle class for the first time in American history. And this too has had massive impact on faith and spirituality in America because wealth affords one options. Uh, when he was asked how he feels now about rejecting a $50 million offer to continue his TV series, uh, one of our greatest living stand-up comedians, Dave Chappelle, uh, he observed this same truth Money is the fuel for choices, he said. That's not nothing. That's something. My friends will say, Dave, you know, at the end of the day, you still have your integrity. That's great. I'll go home and make make my kids some integrity sandwiches. But... We're not just talking about a variety of sandwich options, obviously. With, with more money comes a longer reach into a world of materialism and consumerism and excess, all things that destroy faith and spirituality and a hunger and thirst for God. A few months ago, I had coffee with a, this older, wiser gentleman who follows Jesus, lives in Camas, and he. I asked him about what the church is like in that particular neighborhood and area that he lives in, and he said that it was languishing, that it was suffering. And when I asked if he had any idea why that was, was, he said right away, wealth. When you have so much, you become convinced of your need for more stuff and unconvinced of your need for more Jesus. So affluence has affected uh, spirituality in America. And then finally, the U.S. experienced this huge change in immigration following the Second World War as well. And listen to me, this is no way a a political statement. I don't have an agenda with this. This is just a historical thing. Prior to World War II, Uh, War immigrants came from Europe, so they came from like Italy or Greece or, you know, Ireland. And after the war, there came this surge in immigration from Southeast Asia, and from the Middle East, and from India. And then in 1965, there was this thing passed called the uh, Immigration National Services Act, and it ended this earlier ban on immigration from places like China. So now, all sorts of previously completely unrepresented ethnic groups flooded the American landscape, which is a wonderful, beautiful thing, and they brought with them uh, more than just food. They brought with them fashion, and music, and culture, and they came carrying their own ideas which were altogether new in American culture and their own faith and their own morality so for the first time on a national level Uh, A Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim weren't just characters from a book about adventures around the world and the crazy stuff other people believe, but now they were your neighbors or your nephew or your co workers, which is, again, a beautiful thing. And I'm in no way suggesting that this is bad at all. Believe me when I say a lack of ethnic diversity is a tremendous bummer to me personally and particularly within the church. What I am saying is that such a thing indicates a massive cultural sea change in America's spiritual landscape. So these are the three great shifts there we went from a majority to a minority we went from the center of influence to the fringe we went from well respected to disrespected and all these things brought about at least in part by secularization by affluence and by multiculturalism now one could say positive or negative things about some of these things but the point is that to be a follower of Jesus today is a totally different thing than it was for say your grandparents if they followed Jesus that's what I'm getting at And all this leads me to this new series that we're in. So open your Bibles, if you have them, to a book called Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter one. There is this metaphor that permeates the entirety of the Bible. It's one that effectively captures this historical moment in which you and I have found ourselves. And it's something called exile. So once you get to Daniel, let's read the first five chapters Uh, Or five verses. (laughs) You're in for it. (laughs) Let's read the first five verses of Daniel chapter one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Asphodelos Ashpenaz these guys the king ordered Ashpenaz chief of his court officials to bring into the uh, into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility young men without any physical defect handsome is important showing aptitude for every kind of learning well informed quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace it's like a whole palace full of Camerons you know just running around (laughs) you like that Complimentary humor, it's different than derogatory humor. Instead of being like, this guy's so dumb, it's like, isn't it funny how great he is? Um... <laughs> The king assigned them a daily amount of food, oh, pardon me, he was to teach, this is important, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were, enter, they were to enter into the king's servants. Now, one of these guys, one of these you know, handsome fellows without any physical defect was a cat called Daniel. And we'll get further into the book of Daniel next week. Uh, my friend John Mark is gonna be here. He'll take us more into the story, but for tonight, I want uh, you guys to attempt a simple thought experiment with me, if you will. So imagine this: imagine you're a young Jewish boy or girl, if if that's easier, um, 13 to 15 years old, maybe. Um, you're a sharp kid. You've got a great family, and suddenly you find yourself torn away from your parents, torn away from your home and the temple, which was your place of worship. And not only that, it happened to be the place where God's very presence dwelled among humanity on earth. You're taken away from all those things and dragged off into a place called Babylon. Babylon, in your scriptural paradigm, which is the Old Testament, is the archetype of society in rebellion against God. So this is an alien, hostile culture Pagan to the core, sexually warped, injustice and oppression are normative, and you're placed in a three-year brainwashing initiative meant to effectively erase your faith in Yahweh and obliterate every single trace of your Jewishness and your heritage. How would you carry on? What would you do? This is life in exile, And the theme of exile begins well before Israel is exiled from Jerusalem. The original exile was that of Adam and Eve from the garden. And from there, the exilic theme continues on into the New Testament. Peter opens his letter with this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus the Messiah to God's elect. Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Then in chapter 1, verse 17, he writes, Live out your time as foreigners here. In reverent fear. In chapter two, he calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. So Peter is saying that the felt experience for a disciple of Jesus in a culture like theirs and like ours is similar to that of a refugee. There's so much that uh, we need to learn from refugees, from immigrants, from ethnic minorities. In a post Christian world, to follow Jesus is to walk in exile. Lee Beach uh, defines exile as the experience of knowing that one is an alien and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. He goes on to say, this sense of exile is experienced by anyone who feels alienated, cast adrift or marginalized by their inability or unwillingness to conform to the tyranny of majority opinion. This is the church's new normal. And the question is, for us, how do we best live in such a cultural moment? Before we get there, a few thoughts on how not to live, to clear the air. The first is separation. So think of this as the the Christian disposition, you know, reminiscent of like a frightened turtle. The idea is that you draw your head and your arms and legs into the safety of your shell and you close your eyes tight and you just hide until the big bad world goes away. You know, the easiest example is uh, certain Amish traditions that have Quite deliberately separated themselves from culture, as, as much as absolutely beautiful about the Amish tradition, um, they have very deliberately removed themselves from culture as a whole. And that, that seems like the extreme for the Amish, but that same exact ethos permeates modern evangelicalism as well, in, in the form of the obstinate uh, fundamentalist who has developed a military outpost in their mind to protect themselves from any and all new ideas because they're all guilty until proven innocent, and even then still mostly guilty. Um, it's uh, the mega church campus complete with its own coffee shop and daycare and bookstore and indoor park so that you don't have to mingle with the icky secular world at all um, it's the, the homeschool co-opt I actually don't have anything further to say about the homeschool co-opt I just thought it was funny my wife was homeschooled she's alright but still mostly pretty weird um, laughter it's a long list of cultural boogeymen from which to protect your innocent little snowflake eyes and ears at all time. You know, beware of the movies, they're all so bad. Beware of the music, it's all so awful. Beware of Harry Potter for the love of God, you know. And as a, uh, no one really cares that much about Harry Potter anymore, but uh, in the sense of being horrified of him, I hope, geez, it's been so long. But as a writer and a lover of novels myself, generally I hate young adult books, but guys, I think we can all at this point admit that those Harry Potter books are a work of great beauty, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah they're, they're wonderful. Read them to your children. Uh, but the separation doesn't end with Mr. Potter. Uh, Abby and I sometimes play this game, this is depressing, uh, in which we, we sort of rapidly scan radio stations in the car, and the game is to guess which station is Christian before you hear any revealing lyrics at all. You know, just based on a few seconds of music and like the tone of someone's voice, um, solely on what sounds lame and generic and unoriginal. See if you can guess the Christian station. And let me tell you, we can play this game with a hundred percent success rate. Before you hear any revealing lyrics at all, you'll be like, Christian. And then you wait a second, and they're like, holy, yep, it was Christian. <laughs> that that Christian radio station jumps right the heck out on the And it sounds funny and depressing, and it it is both those things, but it's actually indicative of this fear based separation that even begins to corrupt the arts themselves. Separation leads to something called legalism, which leads to death. But on the other side of separation is something called syncretism. Now, syncretism happens when the turtle shell is traded in for a chameleon's veil. And the idea is that you blend in, you go with the flow, you vanish into the current of culture. And that's exactly what happens. You vanish from the church and from the way of Jesus altogether. It's something like uh, Germany, which was the birthplace of theological liberalism, and now it is a Graveyard for the church. It's uh, the progressive mainline denominations that are all mostly empty on Sunday mornings. It's famous writers and bloggers, you know, the, the Rob Bells and the Rachel Held Evans and Matthew Vines of the world, who used to be a part of church before they thought better of it, and now they have spiritual friends, or however they describe it. Syncretism leads to uh, something called theological liberalism, which historically, time and time again, has acted as the harbinger of death for the church. Legalism is disastrous, yes, and liberalism is a death sentence. And to further clarify, when I talk about theological liberalism, I'm talking about a particular understanding of Jesus and the scriptures. Theological liberalism has nothing to do with political liberalism. The latter I don't mention at all because if you know me at all, you know I do not believe any political party or perspective captures or practices the way of Jesus at all. But I venture a guess that for many in the room tonight, I could be wrong, if I don't know you. But I venture a guess, for many of us in the room tonight, especially if you happen to be, you know, 30 and under or something, syncretism is a far greater temptation and likelihood than separatism is for you. Maybe two of you are legalists. Maybe. Um... Later in the series, we'll talk about something called hard power and soft power. But the, the pool of our culture, especially in the Pacific Northwest, is something called soft power, which means it, it doesn't really bludgeon you angrily and drive away your convictions by cornering you and screaming at you. Instead, it's more of a thing like it's it softly asking you, why go to church tonight? Go out. Instead, have a good time. Have another drink. Or deny yourself. Don't deny yourself. Who would ever ask you to deny yourself? You're so wonderful and amazing and beautiful. Express yourself, express your sexuality, find yourself within yourself. You, 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 you. You, you know? Um, but think about this: if both positions are misguided, both separatism and syncretism. Is there a better way? Look at it like this. Syncretism eventually leads to liberalism, which is the destruction of community and the church and a, and a devotion to the way of Jesus. Separatism eventually leads to legalism, which is complete alienation from the culture. It leads to bad music among one thing and obstinance, hard-heartedness. Legalism is also, also a death sentence. So is there a better way? Obviously, the graph is a spoiler. Yes, it's something called called a creative minority. The term uh, creative minority was something coined by historian Arnold Toyney, and it was popularized by this guy called Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in this incredible essay that he wrote. You can find it after this if you want, just Google Jonathan Sachs, creative minority. Um, But get this, this Toynbee fellow argued that you could actually chart the rise and fall of civilizations, but the decline and the eventual death of a civilization could be staved off by something that he called a creative minority, which he described as a small group of people who adapt, and they innovate, and they stay together, and then they bless their host culture. So think of the Jewish people as an excellent example. After two and a half millennia of displacement and oppression and racism the holocaust they remain to this day very much still a people which itself is amazing there's no more babylonians there's no more hittites there's no more philistines yet the jews remain as a people and not only that a people with their fingerprints all over the western world in america jews make up 1.4% of the population but their influence is represented on uh, on wall street and on the fashion industry and on the legal system and on the entertainment industry from Steven Spielberg, one of the greatest living directors, to the tendency of every modern sitcom still to desperately try to emulate the comedy created by Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David to this day. Not only are Jews a minority, but they are a creative minority. Not only have they been woven into the culture around them, but they've played a significant role in shaping the culture around them. That's what it means to be a creative minority. When I was in uh, Israel a few months ago, I had this Shabbat dinner with Jewish family. And before we ate, this is the true story, the dad stood up and he raised his glass and he said, they tried to kill us, they did not succeed, let's eat. And then we <laughs> sat down. Uh, John Tyson describes a creative minority this way, a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, I love that language, knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. This is more than an idea, obviously, it's a people. My friend John Mark defines it this way. A creative minority is a community of followers of Jesus, doing life together, practicing an alternative lifestyle out of an alternative story, distinct from but not separate from society for the good of the wider culture. Now, here's the problem. To live in the middle as a creative minority is a tricky thing. Navigating the often ambiguous thin red line between separation and syncretism requires something of a a prophetic Tension. What I mean is that it, it requires a great empowering of the Holy Spirit, and it requires a finger on the pulse of the world around us. For this reason, Jonathan Sachs writes, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is, as Jews can testify, a demanding and risk-laden choice. And let's be honest, we all know if you've been around the church for any length of time that uh, the church's track record on keeping this up isn't exactly impressive. And that's because it's really, really hard. How do we maintain an uncompromising dedication to the way of Jesus without getting sucked into the gravitational pull of the world around us? How do you resist that gravitational pull without fleeing from it altogether to the comfortable isolation of suburban megachurch life with our own radio stations and coffee shops and horrible music and where we can be forever protected from that awful Harry Potter by the angelic voice of Chris Tomlin or whoever it is? This is what the book of Daniel is actually all about and why we've chosen to uh, uh, formulate the series around it. Daniel explores what it means to operate as a minority in the midst of a majority that is antagonistic to your way of life. Daniel is about more than just surviving in exile, but about thriving in exile. And this summer, Daniel's gonna act as our mentor and our guide in navigating the foreign world of our own modern day Babylon. But before we end tonight, we're almost there. Just hang in there with me. Let's turn one more time to Jeremiah chapter 29 and look at a passage that probably shaped Daniel's worldview and acted as his map in the world of exile. Jeremiah 29, you guys okay? I'm gonna take this opportunity while you turn to drink from this iced coffee. You should have seen those guys back there trying to figure it out. There was all these conversations about how one weighs ice and if like liters and weight translate to the same thing. I just kept poking my head and being like, any closer, we're working on it. Then at one point I turned around and I saw Soso pouring over this big Karoff thing into the, another thing and it was going everywhere. And he's like, I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know how. It was great. But we got it, we got it. I actually didn't drink any because I was talking. <laughs> 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 Jeremiah 29. What we're reading in Jeremiah 29 is the writing of a prophet for uh, to the first wave of exiles in Babylon, one of whom was this guy called Daniel. 29 chapter, or verse one, he says... This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Skip down to verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this is interesting build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Remember, this is Babylon, the definition of pagan, hostile, corrupt culture. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yet this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have Not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, to Israel. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Then you will call on me, and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This letter, Jeremiah, became the paradigm for how Israel decided to live in an alien land. Once again, uh, Rabbi Sachs writes, It would be no exaggeration to say that it changed the course of Jewish history, perhaps even in an indirect way, that of Western civilization as a whole. Jeremiah was saying that it's possible to not only survive in exile, but thrive there with your identity intact, your community around you, and to actually shape the wider culture in a positive direction. We know that Jeremiah's letter shaped Daniel's thinking. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel writes, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of Yahweh given to Jeremiah the prophet, that, he, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years, so I turned to God. Not only had Daniel read Jeremiah's letter, it stands to reason the letter itself had been the shaping agent in Daniel's posture toward Babylon, to being in exile. Jeremiah's letter first birthed this idea of a creative minority. So to end tonight, let me just confess, I understand this is all a good bit of information. Consequently, I don't want to send everyone out of here with this pragmatic, now go do this. Here's how you change your week now that you understand exile (laughs) Um, We'll get into all that next week and the week after, and honestly, I'm I'm sincerely excited about what we'll get up to. But this evening, all all I really want is this idea of our cultural moment to sink in. Maybe for a lot of you guys it already has, but for for many of us, for too long, we've kind of failed to acknowledge the reality that the West has changed quite a bit, and we now find ourselves well outside of the bubble of, of popular opinion. It is in no sense cool or intelligent or admirable to follow Jesus according to the status quo any longer and it won't be anytime soon following Jesus is perhaps the most punk rock thing a person can do anymore which means that it's a wonderful beautiful thing it's something that should belong to us and should permeate who we are we we should own our identity as a disciple of Jesus and i don't mean that with like Uh, hopefully it's been clear by all the stuff I've said, the mean-spirited stuff I've said so far, but not with like bumper stickers and things like that. But imagine the grocery store interaction that you're having with the the clerk or the barista or the waiter, whoever it might be, and ask what your plans are for your Sunday evening. Um, And I think we all know at this point we're well beyond these little attempts at explanation when they're like, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, church. And then you're like, dang, I said it too fast. And then they say, church, huh? And then you go, yeah, I follow Jesus, but I'm not like those other ones, I swear, they're the weird ones, we're really normal. And then they go, oh yeah? What do you believe about sexuality? And then you go, okay, about that, hang on. (laughs) And then they say, do you guys eat crackers and juice and say that you're eating skin and drinking blood? And you're like, it sounds weird, hold on. And then it's just over. To follow Jesus is is a strange thing it always actually has been a very strange thing in fact this joke that i keep going back to about the the body and blood of jesus when jesus first started going on about you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood half the people listening to him walked away and were like well that that's it that's it for this guy right that's, it actually says this is a hard teaching who can accept it You follow Jesus. You belong to a community, a micro community and a macro family that spans out across the world. You are in pursuit of an alternative vision of life itself that your teacher and Lord Jesus called the kingdom of God. And it sounds weird, but there it is. And all its glorious and beautiful truth and weirdness there it is. I'm afraid there's no cool way to spruce it up right now. In fact, you might forfeit the rest of that conversation with the clerk or you might forfeit an invitation to a party or, or even a continued relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a neighbor or a friend. And that's okay. This is, this is an outrageously minuscule price to pay for the life that Jesus called life to the fullest. And it is an outrageously minuscule price to pay when our brothers and sisters around the world actually pay with their lives. I think that we can deal with, you know, the weird looks from the barista. In fact, we'll get into this more as the series unfolds, but the way of Jesus not only survives in exile, but the way of Jesus functions best as a small, persecuted minority of weirdos. It really does. Soon we'll talk about the difference between influence and power, but the church cannot go on being the church in power it just can't do it especially political power it always feels silly to talk about the the political turmoil that surrounded this weird thing that folks started labeling the culture wars you know Um, but if we do entertain that conversation even for a moment we'd have little choice but to concede that that thing whatever you want to call it the that was once the so-called christian moral majority the culture wars it has been lost to the christian moral majority and if that seems like a bummer fine mourn it for a second but there's no sense in living in the past we're now situated firmly in a new cultural moment and this exile can actually act as this wonderfully healthy innovative and beautiful moment for the church and not just the church with a capital c but i believe for our community for van city as well so to end tonight here are th- three things that blossom from the despair Of Israel's exile. The first was creativity. Exile gave rise to some of the best writing in the Bible including Daniel, the wisdom literature which we just spent weeks talking about, Chronicles and on down the list. Exile gave rise to the synagogue which was this whole new mode and functionality for a community of people that didn't have a temple anymore. Uh, Scholar Walter Brueggemann writes that exile evoked the most brilliant literature and most daring theological articulation in the Old Testament. To endure exile, one has to innovate and one has to adapt and even change whilst maintaining an obstinate allegiance to the way of Jesus. And such a complex disposition gives way to creativity, inevitably. Secondly, exile gives way to purity because in exile, with a hostile culture against you, only the strong can survive. The lazy, the apathetic, the consumerist, the half-hearted, the weak-minded, the the what's-in-it-for-me crowd will fall away and shatter on the unforgiving stones of an antagonistic culture in exile. It is something of an inevitability. How many of you guys know someone that not so recently uh, or not so long ago was involved in the church or in church culture, but with a sort of flimsy, non-committal morality or posture, Um, maybe Christian, sure, but not actually an apprentice of Jesus. And then in recent years have completely fallen off the map, vanished from the community of Jesus altogether. My guess is everyone here knows that person or knows several of those people. There is this idea that you are either in or you are out. Or in the words of Jesus, that you are a sheep or you are a goat. You are for Jesus or you are against Jesus. And these things, I realize, are, are more unpopular to say now than they've, they've ever been because we don't like the us versus them thing, and yet they permeate the teachings of Jesus. There is no half-hearted middle. So exile gives way to purity. And final, finally, Exile can create more community rather than less. Because when you steward creativity, when you maintain purity, followers of Jesus have to stick together. It cannot be accomplished in isolation apart from one another. I hate to sound melodramatic about it, but to my estimation, apprentices of Jesus need one another in exile more than any other time. To maintain our shared identity, think of the Jewish people again, or more than that, to project a gracious and prophetic voice into the surrounding culture one voice just becomes this irritating whimper, but uh, the shared insight of a community that is set on display before the world becomes an alternative vision of a life well-lived. My point is that we can emerge from exile in the embrace of community, still practicing the way of Jesus together, holy, set apart, and even so not separated, but integrated into the world around us and not afraid of the culture at all marked by a creative new approach to life that in turn becomes an agent of healing and renewal in the culture at large. And it's in this moment that the church has always done its best work. I think we just have to be up for it. So with that in mind, let's pray.